Most people will not know anything about it at all. And yet this is one of the most consequential events of the early 20th century. And actually one of the greatest humanitarian disasters of uh, the early 20th century. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Oliver Webb-Carter and I'm the editor of Aspects of History and your host. Today I wanted to talk about a subject that many of us are unaware of. The destruction of Smyrna in 1922. 100 years ago, Turkish forces entered the Levantine city, modern-day Izmir, and proceeded to rape and pillage the population within. They then set fire to the city and tens of thousands of people were killed. And as Giles Milton mentioned at the top there, a humanitarian disaster ensued. The reason I wanted to get Giles on is that, not only is it the 100-year anniversary, but it's also something that we should really know about. It's a controversial event, and there are some listening who may take issue with our interpretation of what took place, but I really would encourage you to listen on. After my chat with Giles, I'm going to speak briefly with Paul Lay, the historian and journalist, and he's keen to mention a number of friends of the show who'll be talking at Paul's Buckingham History Festival. If you enjoy the pod, please do subscribe. I'd be forever grateful. I'll hand you over to my chat with Giles. Giles Milton, welcome back. You're very much a friend of the aspects of history. Now, this is your second visit. Thank you very much for coming. And great, to, great to be on again. <laughs> great stuff. And we're here to talk about something that um, I've, I've been trailing, actually, with um, the uh, listeners, um, because it is the 100th anniversary of what we're going to be talking about. Um, now, I mean, there, I, you wrote a book about this, I think it was 2008. Is that right? I think it was. It was a, it was a while ago now. Yes, it? yes. <laughs> uh, but it is, uh, the book is entitled Paradise Lost, written by a Milton, which is uh, well, it's just, I guess you were waiting to do that. But um, this is about the um, burning of Smyrna, um, which is modern day Izmir in Turkey, a uh, hundred years ago. And it's, it's actually, you were just telling me tomorrow the, the, the fire started. So we're speaking on the 12th of September. Um, this was in 1922. Um, it's a, a horrific event, actually. And we're speaking, as I say, exactly a hundred years uh, after. And so I just wanted to, I don't know how, how familiar people are um, with this event. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably poisoned Greek and Turkish relations since but would you mind just introducing it yeah sure because i think yeah most people will not know anything about it at all and yet this is one of the most consequential events of the early 20th century and actually one of the greatest humanitarian disasters of uh, the early 20th century just to give give listeners an idea um, smyrna as you say it's now izmir it's a, a very big city on, on, on the coast of turkey in in 1920, early 1920s, in fact, uh, you know, pre-First World War, this was one of the most cosmopolitan cities in Asia Minor. It was the only city that had a majority Christian population. It was it was cosmopolitan. It was tolerant. Um, it was open minded. And it was an extraordinary melting pot of cultures, of religions, um, of races. 
Um, I mean, the population, you know, there, were, there was a third of a million Greeks living there. Um, there were about 140,000 Turks. There were a huge European community. There were Armenians, there were Jews there. And um, the community that I talk a lot about in the book are the Levantines. And these were, these were European sort of dynasties, really, who'd moved out there in the 1700s, early 1800s. And they'd made themselves um, incredible fortunes. They were, they were powerful, they were rich, they controlled the commerce of the city. And what's interesting is they'd sort of shaped the city in their own image. That's to say polyglot, open-minded and tolerant. So you had this wonderful city that in the aftermath of the First World War, as we'll get onto, um, is going to be completely doomed. Yes, so so um, it's it's 1922. So we're we're four years after the end of the First World War. How I mean, the Turks under Ataturk were, created a sort of a new new country out of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, now, Ataturk was was a secular figure, and so one assumes that the that certainly the senior um, government leadership in, in um, Turkey would be content with a city as cosmopolitan as uh, Izmir or Smyrna? Well, we need to just rewind a couple of years because what happens in the aftermath of the First World War, the, the brilliant, dynamic, incredible sort of Greek prime minister uh, called Venizelos, he has this dream of reuniting all the Greek communities in Asia Minor. These are the leftovers from the old Byzantine Empire, you know. He wants to reunite them under a greater Greek state. And he's so charismatic and so sort of colorful that he persuades the victorious allies after the First World War to allow the Greek army to land in Asia Minor and claim, first of all, the great city of Smyrna, which after all has a majority Greek population. But of course, this goes down very badly with the Turks and they begin to fight back against the Greek army and the Greek army has to push out of the city to sort of um, secure a perimeter around the city. But the Turks attack that, so they have to go further and further and further. And over the couple of years that follow, they find themselves halfway across Asia Minor. And at this point, uh, Ataturk, who at this point is still Mustafa Kemal, he's not earned this title leader of the Turks, Mustafa Kemal inflicts a crushing defeat on the Greek army, drives them back into Smyrna, and basically uh, the Turkish army moves into Smyrna, and the great question is what are the Turks going to do? Are they going to preserve and allow this beautiful cosmopolitan city to survive? Or remember, although you said Mustafa Kemal is, you know, uh, is, is very open-minded in some ways, um, he, his slogan, of course, his mantra is Turkey for the Turks. And in his new Turkey, the new Turkish Republic, is there going to be any place for these huge populations of Greeks, Armenians, Jews, etc.? Uh, and that's really the situation we find ourselves in, in September 1922, you know, 100 years ago, when the whole city is, is holding its breath, waiting to see what is going to happen. Now, we also have the presence of uh, allied forces in the form of, of um, uh, ships on the, in, the, in the bay. What, 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 what sort of role did they play um, in the lead up? Yeah, well, what, what, one of the interesting things is while um, everyone in the city is nervous about this uh, victorious 
Turkish army pouring into the city, they only have to look out of their windows into the Bay of Smyrna, and there are 23 Allied battleships, principally British, American, um, and French, and they feel reassured by these battleships. They're absolutely convinced that the Turks won't dare attack anyone, won't dare commit atrocities, because their guarantee is just in the Bay of Smyrna. Um, they think that the, these, these battleships will intervene if things get bad, but how badly wrong that they're going to be proved to be. And so the Turkish forces, they do decide to move in, don't they? Um, uh, round about, is it around about the 12th of September? Yes, yeah, slightly before, about the, uh, about the 9th of September, they move in and this is where the first of the atrocities begin. The, the atrocities, uh, and when I'm talking about atrocities, I'm talking about rape, loot, pillage, um, and murder, begin in the Armenian quarter. You know, this is only a few years after the Armenian genocide has taken place in Turkey. And so the Armenians who incitement have been protected up until this moment by, I have to say, a very enlightened Turkish governor of the city, they now find themselves bearing the first brunt of the violence that's going to be meted out by the, uh, by the Turkish soldiers. So uh, the Turkish soldiers move into the Armenian quarter. And I mean, I have, you know, horrific eyewitness accounts of just massacres and rapes that took place between, you know, on the 8th, 9th, 10th of September. So that is the first area of the city to be targeted. And everyone begins to look at this and thinking, oh my God, this might turn into a general massacre. And now the Armenian um, experience in Turkey is, is, is obviously not, not a happy one. And this is a very controversial subject uh, in Turkey today. Um, but what was the, um, uh, was there a kind of understanding that there would be, um, uh, you, you mentioned the governor of, of Smyrna, um, were the Armenians always, because of the, the, the genocide that had taken place already, were the Armenians always sort of going to be first in the line uh, were there to be a uh, violence in, in Smyrna? I think so. And I think that the Armenians could have been targeted actually sooner um, had it not been for this, um, as I said, the government, uh, the governor, um, he was a chap called Rahmi Bey, and he was um, actually originally from Salonika, nowadays Thessalonica. Um, he was um, a bit like the Levantine families in Smyrna. He was, um, he was enlightened. He was open-minded. He was polyglot. He spoke a number of languages fluently. And he was aware of this delicate balance in this city he was trying to run with all these different populations. And so very cleverly or smartly on his part, he always had as his deputy governor, he always chose a Greek. And through the course of the First World War, he steered a very, very delicate balancing act to make sure that Smyrna remained really untouched by the war, untouched by, by the Armenian genocide that took place in the interior of, of, of Turkey. So up until this point, he's managed to sort of hold the city together, as it were. But now everything's changed. You've got a victorious Turkish army on the rampage. You've got a newly appointed governor of Smyrna, who um, is rather less enlightened, um, who is determined to basically wipe out all um, non-Turkish elements in the city, which means destroying a vast, vast section of the population of the city. And the um, the, the Turk in charge of the the the, the army, the, the, the Turkish army going in, um, what kind of man was he? General Nuruddin, who uh, Mustafa Kamal uh, places in charge of the city, he is um, 
he really wants to live by his mantra of Turkey for the Turks. And he has no uh, time for the Greeks, for the Armenians, for the Jews, for the Europeans, for the Americans, all of these people in the city, he just wants to kick them out. And he will behave or encourage his troops to, to behave with um, unspeakable violence. Um, and uh, really he, he, he sets them on the path over the course of the next two week, weeks to, to rape, to pillage and to kill. Now, you've mentioned this about uh, Turkish forces, and I wanted to get onto this because this is this isn't something that uh, if we were um, talking to a Turkish historian, they might disagree with your um, your your description of, of the events. Why is that? Why? Why is that? So, yeah, if you if you ask a Greek who burned Smyrna, they will instantly say, well, of course, it was the Turks. If you ask a Turk, uh, they will say, oh, well, of course, it was the Greeks. So um, I wanted to sort of go beyond these two traditional narratives, and I wanted to look for eyewitnesses who were in the city, who were perhaps more reliable eyewitnesses than either a Greek or a Turk. So I, I tried to really look through all the testimonies I could find of um, the uh, Americans in the city, of the Europeans in the city, and particularly the Levantines in the city, because the Levantine community, they didn't really care who ran Smyrna, Greek or Turk, as long as they could continue making their money, making their fortunes and living in their splendid palatial residences. So they had no access to grind. Um, and so their accounts and some of the um, American missionaries who are in the, in the city, some of the teachers who worked at the American Collegiate Institute, um, their, their accounts were very, very interesting. And they tell a very, very different story from the, the handful of Turkish accounts uh, we have. And really they all say the same thing, that they all saw with their own eyes, Turkish troops, both, both regular and irregular forces coming into the city with gallon drums of petrol and basically dousing, first of all, the Armenian quarter in petrol and then other uh, parts of the city in petrol. I have incredibly vivid, and what seemed to me extremely reliable eyewitness testimonies of these people um, who, who saw uh, the Turkish army uh, willingly and deliberately setting fire to the city. And as we've mentioned, it was published some time ago in 2008 or nine, I think. I'll, 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 I'll put that in the show notes. Of course, there'll be a link to the book. Yeah. Um, but it was also published in Turkey, wasn't it? So with that, with what you've just said in mind, I mean, how did how, what was the reaction in Turkey? Um it was very interesting because the book, first of all, got snapped up by the Greeks, who uh, obviously very much liked my uh, my account of what happened on those fateful days in September 1922. And I was very surprised when uh, the Turks, uh, a Turkish publisher, came forward and wanted to publish it, because, as you say, the Turks do not come out of it very well. Neither, I should say, do the English or the uh, Americans. But um, going back to the Turks, yes, the my editor in Turkey said, I don't agree with what you said in this book, but he said, but I think it's important that this book should be published in Turkish so people can make up their own minds. A very enlightened liberal, you know, sort of editor. Uh, so he published the book and um, I have to say he got me over to the Istanbul Book Fair and I did some talks and I did some publicity. Um, one interview I did in a cafe for, for Turkish TV did not go down very well. People were listening in and um, disagreeing quite vociferously on what I was saying. And I'm told that if you look on the in Turkish internet, um, there are not very flattering things written about me and my book, um, which I've tended to ignore. Um, but, um, you know, I think I have come up with a pretty reliable uh, 
account of what happened in those terrible days in September based on the most reliable eyewitnesses I could find. And you, you mentioned the, the uh, British and American um, presence and, and they didn't, well, well, really they just sat back and watched, didn't they? They, the captains of these ships refused to do anything, and, and, and that begs the question of why. The reason was that both the Brits and Americans had realised that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk had won this war. The Greeks had been defeated, and they didn't want to do anything to be seen to be helping the vanquished Greeks and Armenians. So you have this awful situation at the beginning of September 1922, where you have hundreds of thousands of desperate refugees congregated on the key side of Smyrna. They're screaming, they're hungry, uh, and you've got the fire raging behind them. And they could have been rescued by the warships in the bay. But the captains, they know that Mustafa Kamal has won this war. They're already thinking about the rich oil deals they're going to do with, with the new Turkish regime. So they're under orders to do nothing to save these, uh, these, these refugees. But what happens on these warships, after a few days, the, uh, the, the, the crew on these ships can no longer bear the screaming, the, the shootings that are taking place in front of their very eyes, and they start to rescue some of these people. But of course, it's too little too late. They've only got tiny, these small boats, you know, life rafts on their, on their vessels, which they lure into the bay, and they start to pull off, you know, the women and children first. But it's going to be a very, very desperate situation. And, because, and this is all happening, you know, that they are, they're not sort of miles off the, off the coast, they're very close in. Then. They're so close that they can, as I said, they can hear the screaming and the screaming mm. is so bad and so terrible to hear that actually one of the ship's captains um, in, instructs his ship's band to strike up music to try and drown out the sound of women and children being screamed as they are, are raped and shot. Um, now you mentioned the the the, the numbers of the populations in in the city. Um, how many people were killed? And 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 uh, we know there was a humanitarian disaster and, and huge numbers of refugees. But how many were were killed and injured? Well, that's a very, very difficult and controversial sort of subject. The The death toll uh, in and around Smyrna is anything, get this, from 10,000 to 125,000. We simply don't know. We we do know that on the waterfront, of on, on the key side of Smyrna, there are about um, 400,000 to half a million people congregated there trying to get off. And these people, all the time, they're being picked off by Turkish snipers, by Turkish troops. Uh, being, men were being dragged away. They they were deported into the interior of Smyrna. So this was um, this was a huge humanitarian disaster. But of course, in its wake came something on, on an altogether greater scale, because within a year, you have the Treaty of Lausanne, which enshrines in, in a treaty the idea of the exchange of populations. So you're going to have millions of, of, of ethnic Greeks are going to be expelled from Turkey and, and just literally shunted out of the country. And also uh, uh, several hundred thousand uh, Turkish Tur ethnic Turks who live in Greece and on the Greek islands, they are also going to be expelled from their homes. These are people who have lived in these places for hundreds of years. They're going to find themselves uprooted destitute and really with nowhere to go now is there is the reason for the for this vast population movement so that another smyrna didn't happen in in the region i think there was a realization that the 
you know, cosmopolitan polyglot old Ottoman style empire was at an end. The Tur modern Turkish Republic was for Turks and there was gonna be no place for these, the huge numbers of ethnic Greeks. And, and I, I think it just dawned on everyone that they had to get out or they were likely to be massacred. Um, but it was done in such a chaotic way. Although, you know, when you say that, oh, the Treaty of Lausanne was signed, it all sounds like it was done on a rather official level. But actually, it was total chaos. You know, you have millions, two and a half, three million Greeks being expelled from Turkey. And of course, one of the uh, one of the young reporters who was on hand to witness this and write about it was the young Ernest Hemingway, who was sent by the Toronto Star to go and chronicle what was happening. And he writes these, I, I've got some of them in the book, these incredibly powerful powerful reports of, of this sort of, he said, describes it as a, a biblical scale of sort of refugees fleeing uh, for their lives out of Turkey. And this was, you know, between 1922 and 1923. And the, uh, just going back to the, the killings themselves, I just want to explore a little bit more about this sort of Tur Turkey for the Turks. I mean, because we've seen countless times in history where armies go, go into cities and they lose control. Um, on this podcast, we've mentioned Badajoz in, in Spain a few times. But is that sort of Turkey for the Turks mixed in with, I don't know, the, the usual approach you see with an army going into a city? So that, so that there's really a, a, a hatred built up for anyone non-Turkish. I think that is the case. And I think, I mean, there are, one could definitely draw parallels between what the Russian army is doing in Ukraine at the moment with what was taking place with the Turkish army in 1922. Um, and, and, and like the Russian army as well, you have uh, the regular army and the irregulars that accompany it as well. The, the irregulars, of course, always behave in a totally uh, ill-disciplined uh, fashion. But yes, I think there was more to it than just we're victorious, we're going on the rampage. This was much more about cleansing uh, the city. Also, th this city, which would even in Ottoman Turkey was notorious, it was known as by the Turks as infidel Smyrna because of its majority Christian population. So it, it, it had a heavy symbolism hanging over this place. And where better than to set out your stool than to in Smyrna to, to wipe out the entire Christian population of this city. So I was looking into this and there was one individual who, um, uh, an American called Aza Jennings, um, who who seemed to have saved a huge number of people. What 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 was his story? Yeah, in in often in every great tragedy, there's you know you have one person who is is the great hero, and uh, Asa Jennings was a most unlikely hero. He was a little tiny little wimpy man who never really achieved much in his life at all. But he worked for the uh, YMCA in Smyrna, um, and and uh, he was he was just horrified by what he was seeing. He was so appalled that he decided to um, proclaim himself the chairman of the American Relief Committee. And the American Relief Committee didn't exist. But what he had discovered is there were 23, or I think it was 23, uh, Greek vessels in and around Smyrna, uh, in, in the seas around Smyrna. And he wanted to use these vessels, these empty vessels, to try and rescue as many people from the quayside as he possibly could do. So he contacts the government in Athens and he announces that he's chair of the American Relief Committee and he is going to, he wants to permission to take over uh, these, these 20 odd vessels and use them to uh, rescue the Greek population of Smyrna. And the government, government ministers in Athens are so uh, sort of taken aback by this, so astonished by this American who wants to rescue the Greeks that they, they say yes. 
and and uh, Asa Jennings suddenly finds himself in command of an, an enormous armada of ships that are actually going to sail into the Bay of Smyrna and rescue hundreds of thousands of people. It's quite extraordinary. Even he could not, couldn't quite believe it. He actually says at one point, all I knew about ships until this point was how to be sick in them. And suddenly he finds himself as commander of a fleet that, yes, will res rescue, save the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And and how long did it end? Because the burning goes on for days, obviously. And, 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 um, the burning and goes killings. on for days. And, and there are photos which, uh, you know, you can find uh, if you Google them of, of the of the wrecked city at the end of 10 days of fire. There is literally nothing left. The entire city has been destroyed with the exception of one quarter. You see, the day the fire broke out on uh, the 13th of September, that morning, the wind had changed direction. And this meant that if you if you burn the city, if you put, place your petrol in strategic places, they know that the entire city, except the Turkish district, is going to be burnt to the ground. And this is exactly what happens. The entire city is destroyed. The only bit that remains at the end of the fire, at the end of 10 days, is the Turkish district. So you've mentioned the Treaty of Lausanne afterwards, but um, what about the, um, the the legacy of, of of these events, and and in particular, you know, the the relationship between Greece and Turkey, which is is still a feisty one today. It's extremely tense. Uh, it remains extremely tense. And in fact, um, a few weeks ago, I was over in uh, Izmir filming a documentary for uh, Greek Sky. And um, lots and lots of Greek crews were trying to go in. It's a, it's a momentous event in Greek history, and they wanted to all wanted to film there. And the Turkish government had forbidden uh, any of them, with the exception of the one that I was involved in, uh, had forbidden any of them to film in Turkey um, because they didn't want uh, publicity, you know, drawn to this story. Why is your one? Why was your one permitted? I think it's be because uh, the uh, the guy who was making it, the documentary maker, uh, uh, is very well known in Turkey uh, as well as obviously in Greek. He's interview interviewed Erdogan on a number of occasions, and I think it was through personal links that he managed to get us into the into the city. But we were given like six hours to film, and that was it. So we we had a very limited. It was a very busy day when I was there. It's a tragic story, really. I mean, how how did what how did you find out about it? What and what made you want to write a book about it? I, it's I, it's I, not, and I ask that because it's not particularly a, a natural subject for a British historian um, to, to to choose, really. I stumbled across it kind of by chance uh, through the Levantine communities. I stumbled across some of their letters. I began to delve into the story a bit more. And I just thought this is the most extraordinary story. I knew nothing about this. I knew a little bit about the after aftermath of the First World War, but I did not know um, the scale of the catastrophe that unfolded you know, in Smyrna, um, with with the British and Americans playing, really being complicit in this story. And that, I mean, the, this, the role of the British and Americans is quite a big part of the book as well. Um, it's, it's just a big story in 20th century history. It's certainly a big uh, humanitarian catastrophe. And this idea of the exchange of populations would then play out across the 20th century. You know, we got it right up until the war in Yugoslavia. So, so really, um, the story of Smyrna and the Treaty of Lausanne was the, the first time that um, it was it was sort of uh, decided that you could simply uproot pop entire populations and move them en masse. Um, so, yeah, it was it, a big story, not told at all. That's really what, what sort of ticked my boxes, I suppose. 
Well, uh, fantastic. I mean, it's our, it's our uh, non-fiction book of the issue, which is out next month. Um, the st- the Sky documentary you're filming is that that's will that be available? When is it coming out? It should be out any? I'm, absolutely, I'm not sure, but it should be coming out very soon. Yes, um, I'll, I'll. I will I'll, search I'll, for a link and put it, put that in the show notes as well. Um, brilliant, that'd be great. And, and um, so I do recommend our listeners check this out: "Paradise Lost" by Giles Milton. And I have to ask about the title. Um, were you itching to 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 write a book called Paradise Lost? Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's it's not gratuitous. The reason for the paradise bit is that the American community living in Smyrna had never come across such an open-minded and tolerant city, so much more tolerant than their cities back at home, that when they settled there, they came to call their district uh, paradise because they thought they'd landed in paradise. Um, but um, I have to say also when the book came out and my daughter, one of my daughters was uh, very young and at school um, she was talking about um, Milton. She said, has anyone heard of Milton um, who wrote a book called Paradise Lost? And my young daughter piped up. She said, yes, that's my dad. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Giles, I mean, that's actually rather an uplifting thing to hear after a tragic story. Um, but thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me on again. Cheers. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that. Now we're going to move on to Paul Lay. He's got a number of speakers at the Buckingham History Festival that are fascinating. And I always love talking to Paul because he's so well read, so knowledgeable and brings a perspective that I hadn't thought about, but which somehow seems familiar, if that makes sense. He's the author of Providence Lost, which I highly recommend if you enjoyed the Oliver Cromwell episode with Miranda Malins. Paul Lay, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Now, I am in the presence of, um, you know, someone particularly important in the history world, literary editor at The Critic, former editor of History Today, and the author of a fantastic book. Um, well, we've discussed this, this book in the Aspects of History YouTube channel. Uh, or, or the um, book about the interregnum, which and the name has escaped me suddenly. It's called Providence Lost. The right of course, Providence. Providence Indeed, and the, the the funny thing is, um, the reason why my brain wasn't working was because um, I was talking to Giles Milton, um, who is written, who wrote a book called Paradise Lost, and I, mm. and, and and that's what completely confused me. So many yes. apologies. Fantastic book, all about the uh, the interregnum. Um, fascinating story. We've just had the third of September, we um, which is a key date. I remember you telling me um, all about uh, so many key events during Oliver Cromwell's life. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about something else: the Buckingham History Festival. And you are the director of the Buckingham Hist- History Festival, as well as. Um, being the literary critic, critic for the editor, so I just wanted to just I wanted to get you on because um, we were just talking about it. There's so many authors that I recognise from uh, who have contributed to aspects of history, um, but could you just introduce the Buckingham History Festival for us? Yes, of course. It takes place over the weekend of the seventh to the 9th of October, and it has um, an array of talks of many people whose books or work 
in recent years I've admired. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems with putting together a history festival is that you have to leave some people out. And that's always a great shame. We could have gone on uh, for a week. And of course, if this is a success, maybe next year we will go on for a week. Who knows? But um, we've got a mixture of very big names. Um, Robert Harris is our headliner, um, the great historical novelist whose new novel, Act of Oblivion, set in the Civil War, or rather the aftermath of the Civil War. So you can see my interest in that. Um, Have you read it? Uh, have I read it? Yes, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's no, brilliant, it's, isn't it? No, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And um, I think he gets the real salty flavour of the language particularly well. Oh, really? And he he's very very good at atmosphere. When you think of the hideous executions of the regicides and all that stuff, it's really it's really visceral in the way he does it. But he's also I think he's respected by historians because he does his work, although he does take liberties as historical novelists should um, and invents a character in this. Uh, nevertheless, I think it really does give you a very authentic flavour of the manhunt, the transatlantic manhunt for, um, for two um, regicides um, in the wake of the restoration of Charles II. So it's a terrific book. And we're very much looking forward to him and absolutely delighted to have him on board. Um, on the Friday evening, um, uh, we've got Simon Heffer, um, who will be talking about the third volume, indeed all three volumes, I presume, of his wonderful edition of Chips Channon's Diaries, which is such a revelatory work about the way in which power works, the way in which celebrity works, the way in which hierarchy and class worked in England uh, during the first half of the 20th century. And of course, it has uh, real resonance now in the light of Queen Elizabeth's death. We see the world in which in many ways she grew up or what was the background to her reign and um, or the, the age that preceded it. And we can see just how much Britain uh, and the world has changed, but also how much of it has actually remained much the same. So that's uh, very good. And he's in conversation with someone who knows all about the machinations and the travails of politics, and that's Michael Gove MP. Um, so that should be a fascinating discussion between those two. So that's a real highlight on Friday. But we range across a whole load of subjects. We open with brilliant young scholar Fitzroy Morrissey, who's an expert on Islamic philosophy, and he's going to look at the relationship between Islam and the ancient world, particularly the role that Islam played, um, that Muslim countries and cultures played in the preservation of ancient Greek and Roman texts and ideas. So that's very exciting that we'll proceed. Uh, yeah, I, I was looking at that. That, that looks so interesting because I, I studied ancient history at university and I'm just so fascinated by how he can link. Well, it's presumably it's about Islam preser preserving uh, ancient it's, Greece. It's Islam preserving. But I think also that Islamic scholars who engage with Greek and Roman thought also in the means of passing that knowledge on, also add 
their own flavor to it as well. So it's, um, it's a very interesting thing, but it is something that the West in particular uh, is in debt uh, to Islam um, in that preservation and, and the passing on of, of cultures that could easily have been lost and which are so valuable to us. Uh, we've got on Saturday, we've got on another civil war theme, it's not just about civil war this stuff, but we've got the excellent Jesse Charles, who will be talking about the siege of Basing House, which is the subject of a recent book, which again, rather like Harris, is something of a thriller. Although uh, in this case, Jesse doesn't make things up. Uh, she's very much sticks to the sources, but the story that she tells is so dramatic, so thrilling, so full of suspense and rich characters that it could almost pass as a historical novel. Um, we've got some very interesting new works as well. Peter H. Wilson, the Chichely professor at Oxford, is talking about his mammoth new book, uh, which is about the military history of the German-speaking peoples. It's, I've got it on my desk at the moment. It's quite a tome. Uh, I've already received a review of it that raves about it and regards it as a brilliant work. And indeed, um, that's no surprise given Peter H. Wilson's previous work. Um, we've got Lucy Ward, who wrote one of my favourite books of last year, which looks at the strange and unlikely relationship between Catherine the Great of Russia and a Quaker physician. Uh, and their relationship led to among the first and indeed the most successful campaigns of vaccination in history. So again, we can see the timeliness there. We've got Ruthsker looking at Napoleon and his very revealing interest in gardening, something that he shared with Josephine. Uh, but that's that's a remarkable book and Ruth's a great talker. We've got Peter Stoddard on Crassus, that most compelling of Roman statesmen, who was just about the richest figure in ancient Rome, whose hubris led to his downfall. That again is a rather dramatic story. And we've got he's played uh, by Laurence Olivier in Spartacus. Indeed, he was, yes, well remembered. And um, we've got uh, the great aspects of history author Robert Lyman, who will be looking at the role. Uh, he, I'm a huge fan of Robert Lyman. Yeah, he's he's been, a, on, been on the, a friend of the show. He's a brilliant communicator. But I think he's also a very, very fine historian who will be looking at the way the, and the role that the Imperial Indian Army played in the success in the defeat of Japan following the absolute catastrophe of the fall of Singapore in 1942. And it's a very, very revealing work indeed that shows a side to the campaign against the Japanese um, in Asia uh, that very, very few people actually know about. And again, he tells it in such a dramatic and revealing way while sticking to the sources. It's very much a real work of history. And what we're looking for, I think, above all, in uh, this festival, are those people who are serious, source-based historians, but who can tell 
a story who can communicate because we know all too well that that's a rare gift among historians, perhaps it always has been, but it seems particularly lacking at the moment. So I'm hoping that um, all the people there are communicators of rich, revealing, sometimes surprising stories. And um, I'm sure that uh, after that, we'll be selling plenty of books, which of course they'll all be signing throughout the festival. And one other, I think we should mention, who you've mentioned sort of surprising stories of history is Gavin Mortimer has written this new book about, and he's been on the show, he's, he, he's spoken about David Sterling, the founder of the SES, who is not, Gavin argues very, um, very convincingly, is not the man that, that, that we think he is. Well, that's a groundbreaking work. And I think it's one that has a mixed reception for obvious reasons, because there are an awful lot of people who've invested in the myth of David Sterling, the so-called founder of the SAS. But what Gavin does is reveal a very complex, a very flawed man who was very much a creator of his own mythology. And I think particularly interesting in that his, his relationship with Paddy Main, an almost psychopathic, drunken Irishman, but nevertheless, one who seems to have had a profound influence on the success and the legacy of the SAS. And of course, there's nothing like the SAS, as, as indeed Saul David pointed out in his review for The Critic, which um, praised Gavin's book enormously. But he pointed out that there's probably no organisation in Britain that is so surrounded by mythology as the secretive SAS. And indeed, they rather revel in that mythology. And Gavin casts a very cold eye and reveals a rather more complex and perhaps more troubling story about the early years of the SAS. Wonderful stuff. So um, it, it's coming soon, 7th to the 9th of October, is that right? 7th to the 9th of October. The website is live, just putting Buckingham History Festival and you can book tickets. I'll put links in the show notes. And we look forward to seeing everyone there. I think it's going to be a very stimulating weekend. Wonderful, Paul. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, always fun to talk to you. My pleasure. Now, on to next week. We've got Robert Harris on his new book, Act of Oblivion. You heard Paul mention him there. He's the author of many historical novels, among them his Cicero trilogy, Pompeii, and more recently Munich, which the recent Netflix movie is based on, and V2. His new book is set in the aftermath of the Restoration as two regicides, Colonels Edward Wally and William Goff, flee to America but are pursued as Charles II seeks vengeance against the killers of his father. I do hope you can join me then. In the meantime, thank you and good night.